Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic. Welcome to the Ref Club Thinkin. I am Adam Powatic, one of your hosts. The other is Aaron Cameron. We are lenders with First National and also co-hosts of the Commercial Real Estate Podcast. Our guest today is a gentleman we've spoken with in the past, but today should be interesting because last time Aaron and I had a chance to connect with him was pre-COVID, maybe three or four months before everything went sideways on us. So I'm really excited to hear his view of global flows of capital. It's a very interesting topic. Not a lot of people have total visibility on it the way that Jim does. Jim is a senior vice president with Real Capital Analytics, and that is how he spends his time to come by this knowledge. Jim, welcome to the thinking. Hey, thanks for having me here. And yeah, it was funny. You know, that was one of my last trips before everything fell apart with COVID. Hopefully one of my first trips back globally after this ends is up to Toronto. Yeah, I don't want to speak out of turn, but I do hope the Toronto forum does take place, some element of in-person in December, but I don't speak for Informa, so that's just my personal opinion. I should make that clear. So Aaron, and I do know your story, but obviously a lot of people here have not heard your previous appearance with us. Can you just give a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? Certainly. I'm an economist. I look at the commercial real estate worlds and help people understand sort of the intersection between the performance of the markets and the capital that flows into it. So helping people understand why prices are doing what they're doing to give people some thoughts on what they should be looking for in terms of making expectations for the future. I worked for a number of years at CBRE as part of the Torto Wheaton research team. It later became the econometric advisors team. So I worked with Bill Wheaton and Ray Torto, two stalwarts of the industry, learned an awful lot from them. I'm using a lot of what I learned from them now with Real Capital Analytics. Let's jump right into it, Jim. I think we have to, as much as we're all sick of it. Let's just define what you saw in your industry as a result of COVID. We're really kind of talking about international capital flows, but just what impact did COVID have? And maybe let's try to just skate that through to you know whatever it is, June 23rd today, and then we'll talk about what we see going forward. Sure. So talking about global capital flows just broadly, not just Canada, not just Canadian capital where they're going, but all global investors in terms of where they're looking for opportunities outside of their home country. The initial thought that a lot of folks, including myself, had was that cross-border flow would contract even more than the market overall because of just the problems that people had going anyplace. Couldn't go to another country. Everybody was locked down at home. But the declines in deal volume, it really wasn't too much different than the markets overall globally. There's a couple of reasons for that. One, while people may have been limited in terms of where they could travel, capital was not. Capital doesn't care about temperature checks and uh, vaccine cards or anything. It just flows overseas. But it also speaks to something about the professionalization of commercial real estate investment worldwide. When my firm, when we talk about a cross-border investor based out of Hong Kong, sure, they may be in Hong Kong for their headquarters, but they've got people pre-positioned all around the world. And so that has also helped that component of capital continue to flow even during the downturn. What about people having to pivot quickly? You know, March, April, May of last year. I mean, real estate is not built to pivot quickly. You know, it's not like day trading stocks or anything. But did you see a noticeable effect in a short period of time in terms of these larger institutions quickly redirecting their attention and capital elsewhere? There certainly has been a redirection of that capital in response to COVID. Traditionally, a lot of the cross-border investors 
loved office buildings. They look great on the brochure you're bringing to your board, who maybe they don't really know too many global markets. But if you show them a steel and glass skyscraper on Bay Street from the 1970s, they kind of get a sense of it. That's the kind of thing that has transitioned. People are not sure what's going to happen next with the office market in terms of the fundamentals of demand. You know, will people go to a purely hybrid function? Are we going to be like you know, a lot of cities in Asia where everybody's back? What's that final disposition? Because that impacts the income side. And so I'm not going to pay top dollar for an asset where I'm not sure what the future income will be. So they pivoted away from offices to some degree, more so to industrial buildings where everybody agrees there's more online shopping, more of a need to store stuff on the back end. So it just seems like a safer bet. So more capital is kind of shifting that way. It's not to say that they don't like offices, just they're not sure what the future of the income holds for those buildings. Can we just take a step back real quick? We've had this conversation before the last couple of times we've talked, but I think it just helps for the listener viewers to get a sense of what's transpiring. Real estate was always kind of an alternative asset. I mean, I guess it's still considered that, but there wasn't a ton of capital chasing real estate. Go back 10, 15 years, right? Then even pre-COVID, we were finding and feeling that you know major institutions, global institutions, more and more of their sort of investment portfolio was kind of leaning towards real estate, maybe just seen as a safe investment with adequate risk-adjusted yields. Now we're finding post-COVID, it's even crazier. I mean, we've had many stories now where there's just so much capital chasing yields in real estate, both on the debt and on the equity side. Maybe just back up if you could and just explain why real estate has become, I don't know if it's a flavor of the month or just an asset class that is just so attractive. And maybe in the context of what are the other competing assets that capital can find itself for an equal sort of risk-adjusted yield? Sure. Here's the thing, though. In our industry, we're all kind of narrowcast. We see a lot of capital flowing into assets in our industry. And you go to a secondary, a tertiary city, and people talk about how they're shocked at how cap rates are at such record lows that they've not seen in the last 20 or 30 years. And so to them, it just feels like it's just too much capital coming in and we're all going to die. Thing is, there's just a glut of capital worldwide chasing any kind of yield asset. It's not just us. It's not just commercial real estate getting out of hand. It's just a glut of capital worldwide looking for some sort of safety and some sort of home. The yield opportunities in real estate are great, but it's also impacted the stock markets. It's impacted the FANG stocks in particular, anything Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, all the tech stuff where people see that there's some sort of ongoing income, that's really gone up as well. And you know, there's a couple of reasons for the excess of savings. Demographics explains a lot. China, South Korea, you have a huge population in their prime earning years in terms of a share of the total. There's a very low dependency ratio in those countries. So they have to save that money and send it someplace. But not just those two countries. Globally, we're in that stage. We're in a stage where the majority of the population is in that prime working age. That's not always the case. And so you've got that glut for a while that is going to be flooding investment aspects of all types. And then combine that with you know the excess of capital from just the government actions to try and put a floor under the downturn. It's kept rates low. It's kept capital liquidity high. And so that combination, you know, it's just yield is king. People are looking for that anywhere, but it's not just us. So everything you're describing in the you know global context applies to Canada. And I will admit that I am one of those people my interest in real estate kind of stops where the border surrounds Canada. That's just because all the business I do is within those borders. And so I don't pay attention other than, you know, you read articles here and there in the newspaper, but I don't pay much attention outside of our borders. 
So is the rest of the world, and I know it's very broad, but are they experiencing everything that we're experiencing here, being industrial and apartments or the absolute flavor of the day? As you said, pension funds uh, increasing you know, allocations and exposure to that asset class, shrinking cap rates, everything that we're experiencing here, is that pretty universal globally right now for established markets? Globally, there's a bit of division by region in terms of where we are in response to COVID. Asia Pacific entered the downturn before other regions, so it's coming out of it sooner. Sometimes I'll be on calls with clients in Korea and Japan, and they are all in their office. It's all back to normal, more or less. Wear a mask on the subway, you get the office and everything's okay. That's what it's like there now. And so that has implications for property income moving forward. In those regions, people are more or less back. Other parts of the world, we're not as far along. Europe is not as far as long as, say, the U.S. in terms of reopening and getting the number of people vaccinated. You go down to places like Texas or Florida, you feel like you're almost in another country entirely where pandemic, what pandemic? <laughs> and everyone seems to be back in the office and just kind of doing their thing. So there's differences at that fundamental level in terms of how the population's behaving, what that means for property income. And then that translates eventually to expectations on prices. We haven't seen huge moves in some of the big coastal markets in the United States, some of the big global business hubs in Europe, where investors sold things at a loss because of COVID. The relief valve for the downturn has been deal volume. Buyers, they don't want to buy something unless they're given a huge discount to reflect all the uncertainty about what happens next with the crisis. And you know, the owners, if they're not starving for capital, if they're not highly leveraged, they don't need to sell at the moment. So why take a loss? Just sit and wait. And so prices haven't really been the adjustment mechanism. It's been deal volume. Jim, maybe let's just keep going down that path. We're talking about, I don't know if you want to describe it as a perfect storm, but there's just so much savings and so much capital. It's coming from all over the world. It's not one area or the other. Is this a peak or is this a trend that's going to continue going upwards? Are you concerned? I mean, you're an economist. So I think by nature, you're looking for trends. What are you seeing going forward? Or is this just something that's going to continue into the foreseeable future? Here's the thing. Economists forecast a lot of things. Sometimes it's right. Sometimes it's wrong. There's some things that are more predictable than others. One of the most predictable things is demographics. You count the number of young men, the number of young women. Nature takes its course. You have population growth. So the demographic cohorts in you know, parts of the developing world where so much savings is happening, it's at that peak level, generally. China has been a net saver, but you know, 10, 20, 30 years, it's moving into a period of time where they're going to have a big population burden of older folks drawing down on all the savings they're doing today. So that starts to disappear. South Korea, similar kind of age cohort in terms of the change. There are some other countries that are going to move up in that direction. India is going to have a much larger cohort of working age people. Just as China pulls back, India is going to start taking over on that in terms of savings. The challenge is that you know China was saving while they were kind of a high income country, moderately high income in terms of output per worker. India is not as highly productive yet, but the population will be big. So it's not clear just how much capital is there. But it's going to be interesting to watch India potentially pop up on that list. They're not necessarily like emerging markets, but you're talking about, you know, markets that are less up the curve or down the curve. I'm not sure exactly. Middle income. Middle income countries is what you're talking about. So, so a lot of the sort of the more 
mature, for lack of better words, or the Western countries that don't necessarily follow that same demographic trajectory, right? We, we kind of have an older demographic, you know, with the baby boomers and such, and haven't necessarily had the population growth that some of the countries you described. Does that change right. the different deployment of capital? Or how do you perceive or what impact does that have just on real estate or just kind of what you're seeing in your research? One of the things it does is that the older population countries, you know, they're not saving as much. They're not going to be as much of the dominant source of cross-border flow for a bit because of just there's less of a need to put capital to work. They're trying to draw down on capital to pay for retirements. But then there is the other element of capital flow, like I talked about at the beginning in terms of capital coming into the economy, government support, putting a floor under the downturn this time through. That's been a common theme across many regions of the world. The global financial crisis was close enough in living memory where people remember just how terrible it was and they didn't dither. They very quickly provided some sort of support. And that too creates you know, some capital that is uh, bouncing around looking for a home. Presumably at some point that support goes away to the extent that that government support was helping prices that portion of roads. But the demographic thing, there's still going to be that need for yield from people planning for their retirements moving forward. Let's talk about that from a Canadian context. Obviously, you know, the pension funds are big outbound investors globally within Canada. What are they looking for overseas that they're not getting at home? I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with the reputation for Canada being a safe and somewhat low-yielding environment for uh, real estate. But what are those big institutions looking for outside of Canada? Where are they getting it? And how did that shift during COVID? It's funny, in a lot of sense, what the Canadian investors are looking for outside of Canada is just more of the same. It's not necessarily low yields. I just call it, you know, when you said safe, it's that predictable yield. That's the key thing to know that you have some sort of ongoing yield to pay all those pensioners. You know, that's largely what the Canadian money looking overseas is managed for. It's all the large Canadian pension funds. If I look at during the COVID era, where Canadian capital went to, you know, 90% of that capital went to developed markets, you know, places like the UK, US. The US, in fact, was half of all Canadian outbound capital during the COVID era. There was about a good 10% chunk that went to developing countries, China, Indonesia, India. But that's not a big number for the Canadian investors. You know, traditionally over time, about 6% of Canadian capital has gone to these developing countries. 10 and 6, you know, there's an increase there, but, you know, there's a lot of volatility year to year. So I think it's been fairly constant in that sense. But there is this component of that investment that goes to more of the developing countries. So you mentioned, you know, US, UK, developing countries. If the problem in Canada is there's just not that many opportunities to deploy really large chunks of capital, are they sticking to the largest countries in the developing world? Oh, yeah. I mean, in the developing world, you know, it's not doing investments in Bhutan. And why? Because if you're going to put money in Bhutan, you may as well just put it in Moose Jaw. I mean, it's just in terms of the asset availability, it's not there in either case. So the markets that you're going to tend to are going to be the areas where you have large population bases that have some sort of economic activity that needs to be satisfied by real estate. That's what real estate fundamentally is. It's a box that the economy lives in. And so if it's a small developing country without a lot going on, it's just not a market for real estate investing. So the money's been focused on, I mean, again, Indonesia, one of the biggest countries in the world from a population base, India, China, not the highest income areas, middle income economies at best, but huge population bases. And so there's a need for real estate just to manage all the economic activity. 
So not that I want to contradict anything you just said, but do you see any, you know, dark horses coming up that could be a good prospect for real estate investment, a country that's kind of on the fringes of being the right size or in the right development stage that could take a prominence over the next 10 years? That kind of prognostication, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> You're looking at where Canadian money has gone. One of my colleagues put a piece together just looking at how Canadian money in Asia, how that's been changing, but not just Asia, Asia Pacific. It used to be that a lot of the Canadian capital in Asia Pacific went to Australia, something like 70% plus. But that's shifted over time. It's shifted over the last five years to still a heavy Australia component. I mean, there's cultural connections there that are important to be able to invest. But more has started to go into, again, China and India, South Korea. So there's more capital flowing to areas that in the past Canadian investors weren't really active in. But again, it's kind of the higher income areas. So what I'd be looking for is how our countries, if I want to prognosticate about the next destination, I'd look at country income and population and see who's growing towards that middle income area like China did. And those are the areas that are going to be needing more real estate to kind of satisfy that. And so those would be the areas I target. I'm going to ask you to prognosticate some more, Jim, because I like this line of questioning. I apologize if it makes you uncomfortable. You know, the work from home, and we've touched on it a little bit, obviously COVID impacts and everybody's working from home. There's a lot of companies that have just decided they don't need offices. And we might get into a discussion about just what's transpiring in the office market globally later. But just in general, I mean, there's been this narrative about urban versus suburban, major markets versus secondary markets. Are any of your clients kind of looking abroad, let's, use, let's talk about sort of Canadian capital and stay on this topic, that are kind of saying, if I was going to Thailand, I would only ever invest in Bangkok because that's just the biggest city and that's the only place I'm comfortable. And now it's like, okay, well, wait a minute, maybe I'm more comfortable going to Chiang Mai because there's a bit of a spread out of just where that enterprise, where the economy is functioning. Or is it still just stick to major urban markets? That's the safest. There's a couple of things driving that activity. You've got reputational risk. 20 years ago, you tell people on your board that you're investing in Chiang Mai in Thailand, they'd be like, what? Where is that? Now, there's much more of a chance people know about it just from Instagram and all the food stuff that happens up in Chiang Mai. It's much more identifiable. People know more. It's easier to travel. Not at the moment, but you know, recently had been. So there's a bit of a spreading out that way. Global capital has gone into some smaller markets that way because there's a little bit more of an understanding that there's other places besides New York, Toronto, Chicago, and London. But you know that kind of transition had already been in place. But in terms of what they're buying, you're not going to some small city. You might be able to buy a $5 million property for a fantastic yield, but it's hard for cross-border investors to do that for two reasons. One, they're just too busy. They've got too much money in their pockets that they've got to spend. One investor I know in the Middle East said that he's not hopping on a plane unless he could spend $50 million at a time. I mean, sure, he could go to Winnipeg and spend $50 million on some assets there, but he'd probably overpay relative to what the market would do. So they tend to focus a little bit more just on the bigger markets anyway, just because that's where the assets are that fit for the amount of capital that they have to deploy. So what about Canadians who like to get on a plane and will only do so with a briefcase with $50 million in it? I've heard in conversation a lot recently that there's been an increase in capital flow, the major institutions out of Canada, that they've increased foreign investment. Does the data back that up? It's tricky. There is a decline over the last year simply because everything was down. So from that perspective, you know, there's not like more 
what I should look at is total Canadian investment relative to their overseas investment. I hadn't thought to look at that figure ahead of time, but it'll be a weird number over the last 12 months anyway, because everything was falling. And so sometimes you get one deal just throws everything off when everything's falling. But it is the case, though, that Canadian money has continued to look for places overseas. And it's just a lot of cases you have to, if you have a handful of large groups, all kind of trading assets back and forth in Toronto, and you like that kind of financial hub driven office space, you have to start looking to other cities globally just to put the capital to work in that sector. There's only so much space that can come to the market every year in Toronto. This is a bit of an off the board question, Jim, but I think it gets lost at times when we have these conversations about just global capital flows. And I don't know the answer, so that's why I'm asking. During the pandemic, after the pandemic, you know, of course, currency rates and exchange rates have an impact on where you're going to deploy your money. Are there winners and losers as we've kind of come out of the pandemic where there are certain countries where they're a better investment as a result to Canada or vice versa, that their exchange rates allowed them to come into Canada as a result of just the change of currency? Currency stuff. There's some evidence that in the residential world that has some impacts on the disposition of where capital comes from. Commercial investment, not as much. I mean, the challenge is that if one country has a weak currency relative to others, that's not necessarily a sign that you should run into that country and buy stuff on the cheap. A weak currency is indicative of a generally weak economy. And so, sure, you might be able to buy something on the cheap in that country because your dollar is so strong and the other country's currency is so weak. But then the income side of the equation of what you should really be investing in, if you're investing in another country and you want to just make a play on Forex, invest in Forex. It's easier. If that's what you're gambling on, gamble on that there. Don't go buy property. Just go you know, trade currency futures. If you're investing in property, you should really be compensated based on how well you're doing at the value changes for the property and the income changes for the property. For an institutional player, you are hedging all those risks at the portfolio level anyway. So you're kind of paying for any upside or downside in that sense. Maybe some private capital that's moving around the world is motivated in this way. I think some of the money that had been coming in from China to places like Vancouver, that was obviously, it was a sort of currency play. It was sort of, I have a lot of assets in China. I got to diversify because I'm worried about further currency depreciation in China. So I own an office complex in Vancouver. So what if values go down, if income goes down, at least I've got a hard asset someplace else. So there's some motivation of capital moves like that. But currency exchange broadly for cross-border movements, that gets fuzzy at times because it's, it's both a benefit and a curse. It sounds like you're making real estate overly complicated with an extra moving <laughs> part to try and account for. You touched on it briefly there, on your Chinese investment into Canada. And that, of course, is one of the groups that gets a lot of headlines here in Canada for investment. But what does the profile look like of groups investing into Canada right now? Yeah, I mean, over time, most cross-border investment into Canada is U.S. money. That just makes sense. We're next door, right? The same reason that Canadian investors, you know, their biggest outbound source of destination for capital is the United States. We're neighbors, speak the same languages, play the same sports. So it's just easy. But there was a time when money from Hong Kong and from mainland China in 2016 to 2017, those two years, those two sources of capital were the majority of capital flows into Canada. It was temporary, though. It was just the border was open for those kind of capital movements at that time, and those investors responded. It's become, during the COVID era, it's been more like normal, you know, back to mostly U.S. capital. 
although a little bit more distorted in the past. In the past, the U.S. was maybe on average, go back to 2011, around 60% of all cross-border money. You know, since 2020, it's been around 90% of cross-border money has come from the United States. So there's a little bit of a change there at the moment. Jim, it's surprising to me. And of course, I'm exposed to it on the debt side, but that's part of, I guess, the capital flow conversation. But I also see it just based on borrowers and investors in Canada. There doesn't seem to be a lot of other locations for that foreign capital, other than, as you mentioned, US and China. I mean, there are some European pension funds that kind of dabble in a little bit of, I've seen some German banks kind of come in on the debt side, but really, really in small doses. Is there a reason for that? Can you explain that? Or does that not surprise you? I mean, it doesn't surprise me. The Canadian market is just less liquid than other markets globally. We put together a series where we try to measure the liquidity of different markets, not just deal flow in terms of deal volume, but it's a composite scoring index. We're looking at things like the number of unique buyers active in the market. How often do big assets come to the market? You know, the global market makers, you know, how active are they in those markets? You know, so a market like Toronto is the largest, most liquid market in Canada, but compared to London and New York, it's far less liquid. So we put together kind of a composite score. Think of it like the score on a test. New York was a 90% score during the good times uh, about two or three years back, while Toronto had like a 70% liquidity score. Both of them have slipped. Manhattan's now like an 80% liquidity score, and Toronto's down to like a 60%. When you've got just a small pool of the same buyers dominating everything, it's just harder for an outsider to come in and get access to deals. Those are all good reasons not to invest here. If the government of Canada employed you to go out and woo foreign investors to buy real estate in Canada, what would be your elevator pitch for why they want to buy here? My elevator pitch is just safety and security. A colleague from Latin America was just going on and on about a vacation he took in Banff and just the beauty and just the friendliness of everybody and just how different it was from home where he had an armed guard and a convoy taking him to the airport in Canada that's not needed. When you buy something in Canada, you've got a rule of law, you know what you've got, you've got some assurances there, you've got a productive labor base, you're going to continue to have some sort of income stream for that. So it's a safe harbor investment for a lot of those folks. Now, there's particular submarkets. It depends how long the elevator ride. If it's a longer pitch, then there's some areas where you could pitch some of the growth opportunities. I mean, there are some areas of the Canadian economy that are growing nicely, and those could be more of the opportunistic stuff. Before we started today, we were talking about MBANG insurance as an example of foreign investment gone wrong. It's not all sunshine and roses doing international real estate plays. Can you highlight what happened there for anybody not familiar with that story? a bit of a warning about what can go wrong with foreign investment? On Bong, their first deal that they did was the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. They bought it for $1.95 billion, and they needed additional capital that they're trying to raise to then go in and convert it from just a hotel to hotel plus luxury residential condos that they were going to sell off and use those to pay off everything. The problem was that their funding mechanism, it was kind of chaotic. If you're building something as a developer, you're going in with a lot of equity and you get a construction loan. But a lot of the money that they were treating as equity was really raised from private individuals in China and sort of a three-month resetting bond. It was a wildly risky debt mechanism that really kind of had to survive by taking on new capital to make it work. 
And later, the Chinese government stepped in and said, listen, you guys, you're being too speculative. You're playing with people's money who don't understand the financial risks. We're going to curtail that for a bit. That ended up, they put in some regulations that curtailed outflow of capital from China into more speculative investments like that. So just a handful of folks ruined it for everybody because they overpaid for the assets to begin with. And then they were just jumping into risky development deals with money that just wasn't prepared for that kind of risk. But that's not every global investor. That was a one-time thing. The rules changed. Chinese money could move, and it moved, and it moved in ways that they just weren't ready for. Most global investors, they're not seeing capital flows driven by the same motivations, and they don't have the same kind of staff that just is doing something for the first time. A lot of German and Middle Eastern investors, you know, they've got decades of experience on this stuff, and they've got networks of relationships. They know, you know who to talk to and how to get things done at the right prices. And that's exactly it. The story of somebody getting a little overzealous with their real estate investments is not an uncommon one, but it usually happens at the, the local player level, not when you've reached the level of doing deals that start with a billion rather than a million as a market for price. So it does make well, it very unusual. People have gotten excited on those big deals too. I mean, that's not just local level. No, true, true. We'll move on to something that I guess we don't want to you know, focus on the negative too much here. I want to do a quick profile. We've got about 10 minutes left here before we get to the Ref Club Q&A, which is, of course, for Ref Club members only to ask their questions. So please get them in. I want to do a quick profile on assets globally. And the one that I want to start with, just for personal interest, of course, I do a lot of apartment lending, as that's what First National is best at. And so I wanted to talk about the apartment sector globally and how it's really grown from a bit of an afterthought to a real location for institutional capital at scale. Can you comment on the visibility you have for apartments globally? It's interesting. The apartment sector, it's become an institutional investment class globally. It had been cross-border money seeking out opportunities worldwide. You go back to 2011, it was only around 6% of all that cross-border money anywhere in the world. So far in 2021, that cross-border money, 23% of it is going into apartments in other countries. So big increase there. Around 2011, I was doing some work here in the United States for the National Multi-Housing Council. It's a trade organization on, on apartments, helping be the voice of the apartment investment industry. And I did some papers for them, kind of thought pieces just to help market apartments overall for investors in other countries and just helping them understand, well, what is the investment class? What is the return it offers? And because they wanted more capital to come to the United States to buy apartment buildings, helps prop up the price. But it was eye-opening to a lot of these groups just to highlight why an apartment market got going here. A lot of investors in other parts of the world were afraid of the reputational risks that went with apartment investing. You go back and UK firms were worried about what happens, like insurance companies were worried about, well, what happens if I throw someone's grandma out of housing? Does that become a problem for us later with selling insurance policies? And they had very heavy investment from socially funded housing that was kind of competing in that sense. But over time, with less spending on kind of that social housing, but still that need for that rental market, Countries with higher rental markets have higher labor mobility. You need people just able to move from areas where labor is not needed, areas where there's jobs. And so a lot of countries started to understand that, hey, we better develop an apartment market just to create that labor force mobility. But it's been interesting. It's been an interesting ride over the last decade, just watching that rise. People understand the benefits. One of the biggest components of benefit is that 
the yield's fairly stable. It doesn't go through the apartment market, doesn't go through the big price cycles of, say, a CBD office building. So for that capital looking for safety, apartments really fit that bill. Jim, you mentioned you went from 6% 2011, 23% 2021, so 10 years later, big 17% increase. To the detriment of what, what were the asset classes that kind of lost flavor international capital flow? I mean, office investment lost. I mean, there's still a lot of investment in an office, but it used to be that that was the only thing they did. You know, it was basically a 40 to 50% share of cross-border investing in the past was in the offices. And this is all the income-producing property only. I'm, I'm not talking about land because those numbers get a little wild at times. That share for offices for income-producing property is down to like 30 to 40%. So it's down. It's still a big component. I mean, even though it's not as favored, it still works well for cross-border investors in the sense of if I had to put $50 million to work at once, a shiny office tower in a CBD location can absorb that capital. We're kind of assuming here that there's the four main food groups of real estate and a loss for one is a gain for the other. But here in Canada, we've seen the rise of alternative CRE, data centers, self-storage. Is that being replicated globally? Is there institutional capital getting into those asset classes for yield or for just for a different investment profile? Absolutely. Globally, that's happening. It's a yield play to some degree, but some of the yield opportunities have already been spent up. Student housing is a great example of that, where cap rates for student housing versus comparable apartments have really compressed to levels where there's not any additional benefit. But what I think the thought from a lot of investors is, is that given the wave of demographics in certain countries, that there's more of a need for educational services moving forward. So they're willing to pay up a bit for the little bit of extra income that might come from that. Data centers have been a huge area of interest globally for institutional investors because of that expectation of ongoing income growth. That, sure, I'll pay a lower cap rate today than I would have in the past, but I can plug into my underwriting assumption a much stronger pace of rent growth moving forward. And that's what's driving some of those alternative asset classes. Life sciences, another great example. Everybody saw what we went through with the pandemic. And the need for additional spending on some healthcare stuff. So all the research that has gone into the development of these vaccines, those kind of firms are leading the future. And so owning the real estate tied to it is a way to get that growth in the future. We're almost out of time, Jim. Maybe time for one or two more questions. A reminder to the Ref Club members to get your questions in for our post-interview discussion. You know, Jim, you'd mentioned land as an asset class that's a little bit wild. Your words, not mine. What did you mean by that? I meant in particular, our global figures, we include China in our global figures. It's a growing investment market, but the land component is much bigger than every other asset class in China. It is so big, the development site sales, that it dwarfs other asset classes globally if we include it in our global stats. So a lot of times I'll throw it out because some of that land, it is being sold. You know, There's a price that's identified for it. But that's how the local governments, in some cases, are funding their operations and some of those deals do some round trips. But it does speak volumes towards sort of the growth path that China is on. They're not done with their development boom. They're not buying all that development site land without eventually planning to do something there. They're still talking about you know new cities being developed in China. So it's still in that kind of growth path. So looking at the rest of the world, stripping out the development site land, getting into just the income producing stuff. That's where most of that cross-border money is focused, the income-producing stuff, because they're going for yield. I'm not jumping from uh, state teacher employment system in the United States into development deal in China. 
that kind of slow, safe, stable yield they need. Maybe China development is a great opportunity, but you got to have all kinds of local relationships to make it work. Okay, last question, because you kind of brought it up. You triggered my brain to think this way. I guess we haven't talked about it, but a lot of these investors going cross-border, they're not just going alone, right? There's a lot of joint ventures finding boots on the ground, finding the experts, and then just being kind of passive. How often does that occur? Kind of what proportion, if you can kind of put numbers around it? That's a good question. The portion that's kind of a passive component of a JV versus some of the largest Canadian investors have fairly substantial offices in places like New York and London, where they have their staff there focused on deals in the regions where they're located. The breakout between how much is JV globally versus just self-originated, I don't know the figures of that off the top of my head. But over time, my sense is that it's grown where there's more self-directed investment, just in the sense that you know, in the past, you were locked out of some of these markets. You know, If you didn't have staff on the ground, you were locked out. The only way in was to do a JV with somebody. But many more firms have spread out and positioned teams around the world. That's making this whole notion of tracking cross-border capital even more difficult. What do you do with how do you categorize the investments of a company headquartered in Hong Kong with offices in the UK that's raised money in the Middle East and deploying it in the United States? I mean, <laughs> what is that? So the market's becoming more complicated over time. But I think there's more of an ability to have people pre-positioned now. That makes your job more interesting, though, right, Jim? If you got to start trying <laughs> yeah. to determine whether it's foreign or not. For sure. We've run out of time, unfortunately. So thanks, Jim, for participating and doing this. A reminder, of course, the Ref Club members, stay tuned. We'll have a after show with Jim where we ask some questions from the audience. Thanks to Real Estate Forums for putting this together. Thanks again, Jim, for participating. Yeah, thank you, guys. Hope to see you in person soon. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show. Adam and I digest the conversation we just had with Jim Costello. That's the second time you and I have had the pleasure of interviewing Jim. And while a real estate person just sits at a very different level than most in our industry, just the perspective he has studying global capital flows and the impact it has on real estate. You know, an economist by trade, so obviously thinks that way, but he's not looking at, I mean, he is, I guess, still tapped into the you know, asset-specific you know, metrics, but is looking at it from a very, very different perspective. And I find it really interesting to, to pick his brain. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, depending on where you sit in real estate, your view can be pretty limited. From my own experience, talked about it a bunch before, obviously started at Collier's. And so there, my whole view of real estate was just Toronto, but not just, just Toronto. It was West End Toronto only, and it was one asset class only. It was just industrial. So that was my whole view, and that occupied all my time, and that's what I was focused on. And then uh, coming over First National, one of the nice changes was now all of a sudden I had a more national view and I was looking at all asset classes. So that was a kind of interesting shift. So that really broadened my horizon. And then maybe if you could talk to a colleague who works at a pension fund and they've got investments in Europe and the States, maybe they've got a view of Canada, US and Europe. But Jim's just sitting there with a view of, you know, up, up in space, kind of looking at the whole globe in terms of the, uh, the capital flows. You know, I can't imagine he ever contemplates a money flow that does not start with the word billion. You know, it's uh, very interesting how, uh, you know, how broad his, his view is of the, yeah. of the entire industry. 
he doesn't get out of bed for less than a billion, that kind of thing. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's fair to be said, your, your view can be pretty limited. And my personally now is definitely, it's, you know, the Canadian boundaries are my view of uh, real estate. That's kind of where my interest stops and starts because that's where we do all our activity. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that he said that was really interesting was just the focus of the, the flight to quality, right? And just how there is this, there is this sort of focus on how real estate truly is a protected quality investment, but it's still driven by yield. I mean, no matter how safe it is, there still is a yield requirement. And it sounded like, and he didn't really necessarily say this explicitly, Canada is not really that attractive anymore. On the yield front, no. I mean, our returns are, are, are on the thinner side. I mean, safety, of course, is the big selling feature of Canadian investments. Like as an example, I've got a client who told me these numbers a couple of years ago, so I don't know what the, the current market is, but they owned apartments uh, in the Middle East and they bought them for around an 18 cap and they owned apartments in uh, Toronto. They got around a three cap and they would prefer to buy more in Toronto. Obviously, huge difference in uh, return on both those investments, but just the safety factor of investing in Canadian real estate, you know, far outweighed the 15% difference in return. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know how that math adds up to me, but I guess at some point you just got to like, trust your gut. Like, I don't know if there's actuarial formulas to determine that type of investment thesis, but I got to imagine if you're looking around the globe and we should have probably asked Jim this, but there are probably other jurisdictions that are looking safer than they have historically, but offer much better yields. And I'm really curious where that capital is flowing next. Maybe we'll ask that question next time we get the, the chance to interview him. Yeah, no, for sure. There's, you know, we, we had the chance to talk to him right before COVID started. And then again now, and even over that time frame, there's been some you know, significant changes. I don't think we talked about it in the actual podcast. This might have been a conversation we had with him prior. But he mentioned that China and Middle East were not seeing the same investment into Canada that we would have several years ago for a handful of reasons, oil prices being one of them. But four years ago, when you were talking foreign investment in real estate, those were the two names that were absolutely top of the list and both negative and positive, depending on how you view it. You know, Owners liked the fact they're driving up prices. Of course, people that are not into the market yet uh, you know, did not. But yeah, seeing an absence of that investment could change the Canadian landscape uh, a little bit. Jim's the kind of guy that you want to check in with every, every six months, because even if our corner of the world has not had a significant shift in in uh, real estate investment, there could be entire other areas of the world that because of our limited view, we just don't have visibility on that could impact us here. If you're you know, a global thinker when it comes to uh, real estate, we, we've actually had the opportunity to speak with him uh, three times over the last couple of years. And one of those guys you want to check in with again and again, just to get his view, because there's so few people that have that kind of just 60,000 foot view of, uh, of real estate. Well, we're, we're down here you know, at 20,000 feet fighting it out. I don't, Anyways, know, about 20, I don't know about 20,000 feet. I feel like I'm more like 20 feet. <laughs> bird, fl- bird flight height. Yeah, maybe that's us. Anyways, everybody, thanks for listening to the end and looking forward to the next one. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.